many of you uh, knew that yesterday was the Reason Rally in uh, Washington, D.C.? Raise your hand. Oh, it didn't make very big stir, I guess. But Reason Rally was uh, they hoped to get 30,000 atheists to march on Washington and sing songs and whatever atheists do when they get together. I'm not sure. But um, it, it, there were some very famous people going to be there at this uh, event. I looked today to try to find out how many were actually present, and all the news sources said several thousand, which didn't help very much. But uh, there was one person there who's kind of an interesting man. He was a pastor for 19 years, and he is now the president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. You may have heard of that. They've become somewhat famous for threatening to sue especially school districts when they do anything of a religious nature. And most of the school districts have simply backed down and taken down whatever offending religious things they have done because they don't want to bear the cost of a, a lawsuit. Well, this man named Dan Barker uh, described himself this way. I went from fundamentalist to moderate to liberal until I threw out all the bathwater and realized there was no baby, he recalls. It was gut-wrenching. It was like spitting on grandmother. I had to grow up and say there's no Santa and there's no God, too. Sorry if there's any little children present. I don't think we have them there. Uh, but uh, there is a Santa. You know. <laughs> I, didn't want, I didn't want to be the source of that <laughs> knowledge getting out there, you know. Well, I suppose it's proper to say we live in a time of a clash of worldviews. That's just representative of it. The number of people who claim to be atheists is increasing dramatically, uh, particularly in the Western world. It's said that the largest, uh, the most atheistic nation, the largest country uh, in terms of percentage of the population claiming to be atheists is France. And uh, this particular group, Freedom from Religion, claims that 22% of the United States is made up of, of atheists. And I don't know how to define all of that. But I've had many discussions through the years with people at various times about whether America is or ever was a Christian nation. And I've usually found that to be a rather fruitless discussion. You can very easily get in an argument. And I think the reason is that there are like 10 different ways of defining the words Christian nation. And people go into conversations like that with one of those ways in their mind. And very often you're kind of talking over each other and not communicating about it. And I suppose depending on your definition, our nation would be classed as being a Christian nation or having a Christian foundation, or we wouldn't. But I've never had anybody come to me and want to argue about uh, whether America is an anti-Christian nation. But that's what the present uh, scene is all about with people marching on Washington. They really want, I mean, it's their, their stated goal to erase all religion from public life. They don't mind that people have these opinions on their own, but they don't want them to be a part of anything that the government does or the schools does or is ever recognized in any public way. Now, Elijah lived during a crisis of uh, values like we're having, one that was probably just a shaking in the 7th century B.C. as what we are experiencing today. And I think we can learn some things, and we want to look at this for a few weeks, as how we should respond when we live during a time where there's a crisis of values for people. 
Elijah, it happens, is um, sort of the first of the prophets who arise in the Bible. He's not technically the first prophet, but he's the first person who arises that we have a lot of information about and what his ministry was. He's also, uh, as the earliest prophets were, he never wrote anything, or at least nothing has remained, unlike those who came after him whose writings we have, Isaiah and Jeremiah and so forth. He's a very colorful character in a lot of ways, but what's evident is that he arose during a time when the people of Israel were in great disarray. A few generations before that, the country had split into north and south. David had united the country as one. All 12 tribes were united under one government that was centered in Jerusalem, but later, under David's grandson, the Uh, the nation split into two, and the north took the name Israel, and the south took the name Judah, because the south, the largest tribe that was there, and the tribe of which David was from, was Judah. The south kept the temple, and uh, Jerusalem, and the priesthood, and the line of David. So all of the kings that you read about in the Old Testament in Judah, once the nation split into two, were descendants of David. But the north set up their own dynasty, and their dynasties lasted a very short time. However, it happens that the king during the time of Elijah was the son of a very powerful king in the north named Omri. And Omri had solidified the northern kingdom. He'd built the capital in Samaria, which became famous in later times. And uh, he established, or I'd say he promoted, the worship of Baal, a Canaanite fertility god, in an attempt to sort of replace the worship in, uh, of, uh, of God that was established in Israel in the Old Testament. And uh, Omri was so powerful, the father of Ahab, that he started a dynasty that lasted four generations, the longest of the northern kingdom. Over a hundred years, the descendants of Omri reigned. And um, He was so powerful that for generations after, Israel was called the House of Omri. It wasn't known as Israel to the surrounding nations. It was known as Omri land. Like this was his place. And what's really fascinating is that the Bible reduces the whole story about Omri to eight verses. Eight short verses that basically say he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's very instructive because it tells us that someone may be powerful during any particular time in history. They may be even powerful for a longer period than one generation, like this man had four kings who followed after him in his line. And yet, God utterly disregards him. In fact, I I imagine that most of you probably never heard the name of Omri until this morning when Mary Kay read it. He's not a person we think of as great in history, but in his time, for a brief period, brief shining moment there in history, he was great. And obviously, God's evaluation is what matters in the end. And we should keep that in mind. Now, what we learn from Elijah is that when you're facing a crisis of values, the real question that has to be asked, the question Elijah asks, uh, not only of himself and answers for himself, but asks of his generation is, who are you going to worship? Who is God? There's all kinds of questions that we're being faced with today that are very important, and I don't doubt they need to be answered. Who's going to raise our cost of living? Who's going to bring jobs back to America? You know, who's going to help the middle class? And those are all legitimate questions, but there's a question that comes before all of those that you have to answer, and that is, who is God? Who are you going to worship in life? 
And the problems in Israel, it seems, started at the top and trickled down. They started with Omri's son, whose name is Ahab. Ahab, though he wasn't as famous during his lifetime, has much more recorded about him, both because of himself and because of his uh, very popular and beautiful wife, whose name was Jezebel. Jezebel was not an Israelite. She was the daughter of the king of the Sidonians. And what we're told is that Ahab married this woman and he allowed her to bring her worship into the northern kingdom and establish it. And she worshiped the chief god of all the peoples in that region. Among all the gods they worshiped, the head one was a person named Baal. Baal was a fertility god. And... uh, What we're told in this passage in verse 32 is he, Ahab, erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, I want you to note, when you are reading the Bible in the Old Testament and you come across the word Lord, and it's in all capital letters or small capital letters. It is a stand-in for a word that's found in the Hebrew Bible. It's a stand-in for the name of God. And the name of God is represented in the Hebrew Bible by four consonants, Y-H-W-H. When uh, the Jewish people, and I was taught this, read the Old Testament, they're taught to say the word Lord, Adonai in Hebrew, rather than even to try to pronounce the name which is probably good because we don't know, antiquity has not left us any record of what vowels went with those four consonants. So technically, no one precisely knows how to pronounce the name of God. People have a way of doing it today, but it may or may not be exactly as it was pronounced. But Ahab wanted to take the place of the Lord by putting in his place this Canaanite fertility god, Now, if you think about it, in separating the nation into two, the North wanted to establish their own identity. And if the identity of the South was identified around the scriptures, around the temple, and the Levitical priesthood, and the sacrifices that were offered, and the festivals that they celebrated, the North had to create their own kind of counter-religious system in order to keep the people from traveling down to the temple to go to the festivals that they had done for some six or seven hundred years before this. And it was done rather effectively in the north. Ahab is the person who really set it in motion with power, mostly because of his wife. Now, the second thing you need to know about Baal is that he was a fertility god. This is common outside of the Bible and any religion that has derived its basic Uh, foundational ideas from the Bible, and there are a number, but any other religion is usually found to be based on some kind of fertility concept or nature worship. And um, Baal, in their understanding, had a companion who was either his sister or his wife or his consort, depending on where the myth took you. But she was with him, and it happened that the relationship of these two gods, Baal and Asherah, were what brought fertility on the earth. And in fact, it was thought that when the gods coupled in heaven, it brought the rain that fell on the earth. And when the rain fell on the earth, it's what brought all of the abundance that you had. Without rain, you not only don't have crops and you don't have trees and all of the things that they produce, you also 
don't have animals because the animals need the water, but not only the water, they need the crops that grow in order to live. So the animals begin to die off, obviously, more slowly than the crops. They last longer, but the animals start to die off, and the humans begin to die off as well, usually the younger and the weaker or the old and infirm first, and then even those who are healthy. So the idea was that in a fertility religion, the worshipers could uh, do two things with Baal and Asherah. The first thing is they could image them. That is, they could make a little statue of them. And it was thought that if you took a little statue of Baal and of Asherah and you put them on your mantle, that they were like windows to heaven. That was the idea. You had actual access to them. When you spoke their names, they, through the vehicle of that image, you could speak to them. And an image is an attempt to control something, to make it manageable. And there's an incredible distance between that and the worship of the living God as it's revealed in the Bible because the only people we know of in all of history are the people who stood on Mount Sinai and heard from God say, you shall not make a graven image. The only people group in all of history that did not attempt to image their God were the people of the Old Testament. And subsequently, those of us who derived our religion out of that, the Christians. So making an image of God was simply a way to control him or her. You could speak to them, and they were obligated to do the things that you asked in some way. But the second thing you have to add to that is that a fertility religion usually involves a form of sympathetic magic, where what people do on earth is meant to affect what goes on in heaven. And what they thought was that worshipers, not to put too fine a point on it, could... Um, stimulate the gods to action by acting out on the earth what they wanted the gods to do in heaven to bring the rain. And that's why there were cult prostitutes in all of the Canaanite religions. Because worshipers would go and in their form of degraded worship, they would then seek to get the gods to do what they needed. And the distance between that, those kinds of degraded concepts of worship and the worship of God is revealed in the Bible. It can't even be calculated. The whole Old Testament and the way that God himself revealed he is to be worshipped kept two things far away from the place of worship and from the acts of worship that Israel did. And those two things were sex and death. The two things that the fertility religions all wanted to include right there in their religion. The Old Testament is a bit troubling at times in the way in which it, it did not, does not uh, make sex or death seem to be something that in and of themselves are evil, but it keeps them away from the worship of God. And the idea was that it, there is no fertility ritual that you can do. You don't cajole God to act. God himself is in charge of fertility, and he acts sovereignly in that. Now, we live in a clash of values today, I suppose. It's maybe not exactly the same. It's, it's hard to conceive. You might think that people are actually trying to replace the worship of God with something else. But, in fact, I think they are today. I think there is a wholesale attempt to, to replace the worship of God. First, in this way, people have worshipped the God of the Bible. That is, they've taken out of the Bible the information that they need in order to understand what God is like. 
And this is always going on for every generation. But we have the benefit that people have written down their understanding of what God is like. And they've studied the scriptures. And we can take those things and help to build our own understanding of what God is like. We're not to make an image of him. But we are to understand what he is like, his character. And if we take it from the Bible, we develop over time a way of thinking about God that comes from the Bible. And what that means is that we might have ideas about God that we think are true, but when we read the Bible, we find out, well, that's not exactly what he's like. And over time, we can slough those off. And we can add other things that we gain from the Bible. But here's what people are doing today. It seems that um, most people, I would say, are simply today building a God out of their own minds, out of the spare parts that they find around them. They might, in some cases, take some things from the Bible that they learned in Sunday school or something like that. And they take those things and they begin to construct their understanding of this is what God is like. And then they add to it things from other religions that they've picked up through the years, values that we find in our culture that they would certainly want a God to think that way and hold those things, and uh, as well as just stuff that they come up with out of their own minds about how they think a God should be and how he should act. And in this way, they're able to construct a God that fits in with the lifestyle that they want to live, the things that they want to do, and he's obviously not going to be condemning of the things that they find to be desirable or natural in life. So most people today end up with a God who in fact, is very different from the God of the Bible. Even though they may use the word God and say they're a worshiper of God, they have a God who is non-condemning, tolerant, forgiving, endlessly forgiving, particularly of anything that the individual does who's thinking about him. Yet he's, he's capable of being rather intolerant of some things, particularly, it seems, large SUVs seem to bother him a great deal. And... Uh, you know, people putting down a gorilla who was going to kill a child. I mean, things like that. He, he's not very tolerant of that kind of thought, but other things he's very tolerant of. Now, the problem with that is, when you start to think about it, all it is is making God in your own image. I mean, deciding what it is you want God to be like and then projecting onto him those things. Most of the time, Christians have been uh, accused of doing that, making God in our own image. And I suppose all human beings in a fallen world have the danger of that. The difference is that even though we know that left to ourselves, we'll add to God all kinds of things we come up in our minds, we seek to use the scriptures. We seek to continually, as we read through them, draw out of them the information that we need to understand what God is truly like not what we fear he is like or what we want him to be like or something like that. So that's what most people are doing. It seems they're just kind of crafting a God of the spare parts they find in life. And if I remember correctly, that's the story of Frankenstein and how he made a human being. On the other hand, there's a lot of people who are doing uh, something different, and that is they're simply denying the existence of God. After all, what simpler way would there be to be able to do what you want to do in life than to remove from your thought any idea that there's someone outside of yourself who has any authority to tell you what to do? And that's basically what atheism does. What simpler way would you find, especially in a time when we have endless forms of entertainment, we have endless uh, promises of technological advance that's going to solve any problem you've ever thought of, and uh, you can find a God that is no God at all but yourself who will not hamper you in any way.
So I think that in one sense, like the fertility religions, people are always seeking to come up with a God, an alternate God, to the God who reveals himself, who we wouldn't know at all unless he had come and told us what he was like. They're always trying to do that, and we're experiencing a great deal of that today. And it's into that situation exactly that this prophet Elijah steps. And we read in chapter 17 and verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, I don't want you to miss the significance of what was just said there. If you're worshiping a fertility God and you believe that you are able by your actions to influence the God to do the things that you need him to do, and this other person comes along and he says, I'm going to speak to the God of Israel, or in this case, the God of Israel has spoken to me, and he said, there's not going to be any rain until I say there is you obviously have a clash of two different worldviews going on there. And it's going to become evident pretty quickly which one is right because when you engage in all of your degraded worship, either it's going to rain or it's not going to rain. And we find out that's basically what follows on this story. But it's very significant that he comes along and that's what he says to people. He's saying, who are you going to worship? Who is God? In troubled times, Elijah shows us that that's really the question. You have to decide, who am I going to worship? And then that's the question you have to ask of other people. Whom are you going to worship? That's the whole ministry of Elijah. Who are you going to worship? Are you going to worship the Lord God, or are you going to worship something else, or nothing else at all? Now, it just doesn't end there. I want you to know one other thing, and that is that not only did this problem start at the top with Ahab and the setting up of a false religion, but it was also found in more general terms among the people. There's this obscure verse at the end of chapter 16. It says, in his days, that is in Ahab's days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, that's like, a, you don't have any idea why that's there, what it's talking about, or what the significance of it is. And it's one of those fascinating parts of the Bible where here's something that is recording an event in 700s B.C., and it refers to one verse that was written down 600 or 700 years before by Joshua. It's found in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 26. And it's just when the people entered the land and they, they took Jericho and the walls fell down. Remember that story? When they did that, uh, here's what Joshua said. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son, shall he set up its gates. Now, Jericho remained as a city, or at least as an inhabited place, but in the Old Testament, when he uses the word city, usually it's referring to a city large enough to build a wall around it and protect it. Other things were called towns or villages. 
And what Joshua was saying, and this was not by God's word, where God said, this will never be rebuilt again. He said that about Babylon. But um, this was just something Joshua said, apparently under inspiration from God, but he said, whoever builds the walls and attempts to reestablish this as an actual fortified city, this is what's going to happen. His firstborn son is going to die when he initiates the project, the setting up of the walls. His uh, youngest son is going to die. We're not told how. At the end of the project, when they set the gates after they've built the wall. And 700 years later, it happens. And what it's meant to tell us is that the people were declining from God. They were falling away from God. And, and here's a person, we're not told anything else about him, but we're told his name, this person from Bethel, who decided to build Jericho. And what it means is the people had rejected the word of God. And it's as though they were saying to God, are you really going to do what you said you would do? Is that really going to happen? Do you really mean it? So it wasn't just a problem that it was at the top, but it was a problem that had trickled down into the ways that people thought and the things that people did throughout the nation. It's as though the, the writer who's about to tell us about Elijah, Elijah's the person who steps up in the next sentence, as though he's saying, listen, all the problems weren't at the top. It wasn't just a bad government. It was bad people. Is because the nation had abandoned God. The people had abandoned God in large numbers. This is a society in rebellion at every level. And that's why they put God to the test. And he proved, at least to this one person, that yes, he really was God. Now, I hesitate to use uh, this next illustration, but I'm going to refer to a public figure. I, usually, my policy, frankly, when I talk about politics is to give equal time to making fun of either side. And that way, I'll, I'll guarantee that everyone will be offended, and then they all know that they're offended. But I'm only going to take one side at this point. It happens to be Hillary Clinton. Um, she gave a keynote address last year, 2015, at the, women's, the International Women's Summit. Um, in the keynote address, she said something. And this has been played endless times on television. You might have at least heard these words. I'm going to quote it. She said, laws have to be backed up with resources and political will. And deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs, and structural biases have to be changed. Now, depending on the topic, I suppose you might agree with her. That sentence doesn't tell you what exactly she was speaking about. But her keynote address, to give you the topic, was about abortion. And it particularly was about what she evidently believes is the universal right for a woman to have abortion at any time for any reason. And that this has not progressed in the way that it needs to. And let me read the words again in talking about that specific subject. She says, laws have to be backed up with resources and political will and deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs, and structural biases have to be changed. Now, there's a number of difficulties with her statement, but one of them is the immense hubris of a person's even be willing to say that publicly, but the, the, the real problem below that is that when you say religious beliefs will have to be changed, I'm not sure people realize how deep that goes. When we say, those of us who feel that abortion is wrong, when we say that, we're not just saying this is our preference. 
I wasn't even taught that by my parents. My parents believed the exact opposite of that, I happen to know. We're talking about something that goes back to Mount Sinai, 1500 BC, really before that. But I mean, the seventh commandment says you shall not murder. That's where it goes to. And there's no question that a child in the womb is a living human being. Whether or not it's viable yet, scientifically it's living and it genetically is completely human. So it's rooted in the Ten Commandments. And not only that, but one of the first things that people were able to identify about Christians in the second century was in something, I quoted this a few weeks ago, by Tertullian, an early attorney, a convert to Christianity, who, in defense of the Christian faith, he gave a description in one paragraph what Christians are like. And he said things like, we don't go to the Colosseums and watch people kill each other. Uh, We don't share our spouses with other people. And we don't expose our infants. He, He also went on to say something that was a little more precise. We don't induce an abortion. Now, what I'm saying is this is something that isn't like just because it's presently a political football that people are arguing about doesn't mean that it is to us. This is something that's like in the DNA of Christians way, way back, 2,000 years and even before that. And so for a person to say these things are going to have to change is a strike at the very heart of our faith in God and what God says is right. So when I say there's a conflict of values here, just as strong as it was when Ahab said, we're not going to worship the Lord God anymore, we're going to worship Baal. It's the same thing we're facing. Well, what I'm saying is that the crisis of values that they faced was very deep, and it was coming from the top in a wholesale attempt to supplant the worship of God, but it was also found at a very rudimentary level which affected everyone. And in Elijah's day, the people were ignoring God, as many people are today, ignoring his word or defying his word. And and what we hear from Elijah, again, is when he stands up, he's going to ask the question in his whole ministry, who is God? Who will you worship? He's going to ask it of every individual he comes across in various ways. He's going to ask it of the whole nation. And the story is quite fascinating, actually, as to what happened. But by the way, his name, Elijah, means my God is Yah. Yah is the first syllable of the name of God. That's what the YH represents in the first two consonants in the Hebrew Bible. My name is Yah. In fact, every male name, at least, that ends in A-H in the Old Testament probably is derived It's based on the name of God. So Elijah's very name said who his God was. But then he was bearing that out and what he was asking and what he was going to do. And all that I'm saying is that that's what we face at the present time. We have to do the same thing. We have to decide who am I going to worship. We have to then begin to ask other people, who will you worship in life? Will you worship America the Beautiful? Will you worship the federal government? Will you worship the school system? Will you worship even your family, your job, whatever it is? Will you worship God? 
I mean, all of those things are important. I'm not saying we like shove them out of our lives and they don't have anything to do with us. They're very significant. We have to make decisions. But I mean, who are you going to put in central place? Who's going to inform you about how to live and what to do? And, and when I say, who are you going to worship? I'm not just asking, will you continue to come to church every Sunday? Because I like getting paid and I hope that you show up. That, that's really not what my question is. And what I'm saying is that worship is not a private affair merely. It is that, thank God. We can open our Bibles and pray by ourselves, and we can speak to God. And if we come to him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he reveals himself to us in the pages of Scripture, we can know that he hears us, that he listens to us. And worship is not simply when we meet together like this, sort of a semi-private affair where we gather together with like-minded people and we sing to God and we learn from him, although thank God it is that as well. What I'm saying is worship is all of life and everything you do and every choice that you make. Worship is the expression of our deepest commitment to Jesus Christ by living for him in our daily lives. And so it's meant to inform the kind of person I am as a husband, as a father, as a friend, it's the kind of work that you do when you go tomorrow, the way that you work, the way that you treat other people, it's meant to inform that. How you use your money, how you give your money and save your money, what you talk about with others. I mean, every area of life is covered by what we call discipleship, learning to follow Christ. The question is, what kind of worshiper will you be? That's the question Elijah asks over and over. It's the question... We need to ask, and we need to ask our generation over and over and over in as many different ways as we can. Who will you worship? It's the question Elijah was faced with. And it's the question the world is asking you right now. And it's the question that those of us who say we're followers of Christ are meant to answer with our lives. Let's pray. Look at that passage in the next generation after this where they said, uh, where is the God of Elijah? And I guess that was because Elijah was such a powerful figure that in the next generation they wanted to know if the same God was still operative. And Elisha, his successor, said that he was. And Father, we're asking the same thing today. Where is the God of Elijah? We ask that you would help us as individuals to decide that we are your followers and we seek to build our lives around you. We pray that you would grant to us all the resources to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.